Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, The Restoration of Love. The talk was given by Elise Aero, EE, on November 26, 2022, via Zoom. EE has been committed to a life of engaging spiritual principles and service through theater, support for the dying, bringing enjoyment to others as a chocolatier, and practicing being attentive to the needs of others and the environment in circumstances such as being a cashier in a supermarket. The talk is based on the work of Red Hawk and focuses on the practice of presence, eating emotions, praising what is praiseworthy, apology and forgiveness, remorse, and the development of love as a stable condition. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Elise Arrow. I saw this piece of paper, which was sent to me by a friend of mine named Red Hawk, who has written books about self-observation and also another book called Self-Remembering. And I'm in a study group um, studying this material. We've been doing this for about three years. And when we get through one book, we just go to the next one and then we keep recycling through because the thing about practice, what I'm finding is that it's always a present phenomenon in my life and it's always there for me to use in my daily life. So this little piece of paper that he sent to me in his correspondence at some point, I'd just like to read it because I'd like to kind of go through and use that as a jumping off point. The soul comes to earth and is given a mammal body for one reason only, to learn how to love, to learn how to restore love. End of story. What if that was true? And what if that was all we needed? What if we had nothing else, no teachers or teachings or books or sitting or any spiritual practice? What if we just took that one idea and used that to build our lives on. But he goes on and he says, so we can only do so by being present to relationship in all its forms, colors, smells, and textures. The task is to struggle, to remain present, and to eat impressions. That means I eat my emotions, reactions, and judgments, not suppress, not repress, but remain present to them and allow the body to transform the energy which they represent. So that's a big chunk right there. And one of the teachings that the work that we do in self-observation is founded on is this idea of using negative energy, my negative emotions, as food, as fuel for something to happen in the body. But that requires that, number one, I need to see what I'm doing, I need to know what I'm responding to. I need to take into account how my reaction or my response is impacting the other person. And what I found is that this is a very 
multi-layered process that we go through to just be in relationship with one another. And so I don't think about, am I going to be able to love this person? Right now, what I'm doing is I'm a cashier at Sprouts, which is a grocery store. And I meet a lot of people. Most of them I don't know. Many of them I do know. And many of them are my friends. Some people I know, some people I don't know. So there's a constant opportunity for me to practice what he is saying here, to eat the impressions. Oh, what did I say? Maybe I could say that in a better way. So what he's saying here is that this is not a philosophy. This isn't something we can just make notes about. This is an active process that each person, each one of you that I engage in a conversation with, we're in this process of the restoration of love. Doesn't mean that something has gone wrong, but it's a practice that is always available. And I find that when I remember that, all the teaching, all of the experience I've had in my life is available for me to reference. This practice seems unnatural at first because of a lifetime of learned bad habits. And the bad habits are there actually to protect me. But I didn't know that when I was creating these habits of avoidance, of turning away when somebody needed help, or any kind of psychological finessing. There's a kind of protectionism that has to be understood and I'm wanting to not say the word dismantled in a way because it's there to protect me. I mean, when I grew up, I didn't feel like I was particularly loved. And I think there's a difference for children who grow up and they feel like they're in a family that loves them and they're with parents that they can rely on. And that kind of wasn't my situation. There was quite a bit of trauma in my life. And I think that other people can relate to that. But that doesn't mean that we're somehow different. I was thinking about how that kind of experience made me want to find out what the real truth was. As I talk to many of my friends, what I'm finding is that a lot of people of my age came from parents who grew up in the Depression and from the war. And I see some friends here from different countries. And their experiences and their parents' experiences may have been filled with the loss of having been soldiers in war who returned, some that didn't return. There are war experiences that weren't talked about, particularly in my family, it wasn't talked about. That was kind of the basis of my relationship with my parents. So I recognized just thinking about some of these things that I really wanted to know what was true. I came from a family that lived near Washington, D.C., and my parents both worked in the intelligence agency in Washington. They both worked for the CIA, and the main criteria for being an agent in CIA was confirm nothing, deny nothing. Well, that's not a very good way to raise children. So I'm just going to go on record saying that my personal experience was, could I trust my parents? Could I trust what they were telling me? And as I grew to be a teenager, I really couldn't trust them. I noticed that sometimes they were actually not telling me the truth. And I'm not talking about, you know, is there a Santa Claus kind of truth? I'm talking about really basic stuff. A main thing that happened in my family was that my father ended up in a psychiatric hospital. 
And I did a lot of digging around when I was a young woman. And I found out there was some nastiness that was going on in the agencies that these people were dedicating their lives and their service to. So it's a much bigger picture. But for myself, the impact of all of that stuff had to do with a keen needing to know what the truth was, not just about our lives there, but what is our culture telling us? Can I trust another person? So I think that's one reason why this particular consideration we're having tonight is so heartfelt by me. This is a way to restore that relationship that I have with my family. Both of my parents are gone now, but I still have a brother. There's still work for me to do on this. I was using myself as an example, but I know many of you, your stories have trauma in them. So one of the things that I need to practice is what are the negative emotions that arise in me? What triggers me or even traumatizes or re-traumatizes me? These are the things that I find useful in this particular way of looking at the restoration of love for my own benefit. How can I use this transformational biological unit, which is my body, how can I use that? So I read about this and I heard people talking about it, but I started actually doing that and doing it in a group where we could talk about taking apart some of these ideas and actually applying them to our current lives, our current situations. The word that kept coming up for me in your share was vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we grow up in environments like what you're describing, or if there's trauma, we, by nature, create obstacles. We're afraid to be vulnerable. And then also the other word that came into my mind and is really prevalent when we're going into an emotional state Mm -hmm. is shame. Because, well, I think we can all talk about that. Yeah. And when these things come up, okay, this is not a new idea. The non-expression of negative emotions is not a new idea. But to actually begin to use that, to actually hold my opinions to myself, to notice that they're opinions, and it might be different to your opinion. In other words, to hold it in a different context is a very different way of being in relationship, especially if there's fear. I would like to give you examples of what it is I'm talking about. One thing I've realized is that just reading about something and understanding it intellectually isn't knowing how to work with it in a situation when I really need it. I was very upset by something one time, and I called Red Hawk because I find that when I can actually talk to him, he has a way of being able to relate to what it is I'm saying. For one thing, he knows my family and he knows me as a friend. So he knows a bit about me. And I called him up. I was very upset because my sister wanted to meet with me. She just wanted to meet and have dinner. And I was afraid to do this. I said to him, because she did something that I cannot forgive. I can't forgive her. And he said right away, without missing a beat, he said, well, that's a lie. He didn't say, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe you're looking at this. No, he just said it, boom. And that is that is a friend that you can trust. 
I mean, he wasn't cruel. He was just stating the fact, well, that's a lie. So, okay, take a step back. And then he said, it's going to be difficult for you to go ahead and have this meal with her because we have different opinions. It was interesting because I was so upset and I've been practicing these things about negative emotions. So I knew this thing was running me and I didn't know how to get out of it. That's also an example of how we can use one another in our practice. We can share stories with one another. And I think it's very valuable to do that. And the more I do that, and I hear other people struggles with this, I learn something every single time. So he's talking about how to learn to restore love. So in this situation with my stepsister, who he knows, I said, well, I don't know what to talk about. We don't agree on anything. I was really in it. I know how to talk to my sister. I just needed to hear how to step back from myself. I was re-traumatizing myself is what I'm seeing in reflecting back. He said to me this really great thing, and I wish to remember it, and I'll share it with you. He said, praise what is praiseworthy. So in my relationship with my sister, I wasn't looking at that. I was looking at what I was not forgiving her for, and I wasn't able to do that. So I just stepped aside from that, and I began to see that I actually loved her. We disagree on a lot of things, but the more I began to see and recognize that I could praise what was praiseworthy, even if it was, I'm really glad that you asked me to come to this restaurant because it's really cool and I've never been here before. She was late and I was stewing in that, but just to go back to the praise, what is praiseworthy. So I was able to stay with that. And the other things started to dissipate. So this is the practice with the person who actually wrote the book, Self-Observation. He was asked to by his teacher to write this book. And it's filled with his experience. That's what I find is so valuable, sharing with one another what our struggles are with this kind of thing. I hope that that's of some use to you. Another part of this idea about love. Do we know what love is? Do I know what love is? Red Hawk wrote a poem called, You Don't Know What Love Is. So two things came to my mind when I listened to you. The one thing is for me, restoring love with somebody. The main thing is listening to the other person, listening and listening and listening and asking maybe some questions and being in this other person's world or having an interest. And this is love when my attention is with the other person 100% and I'm not pretending to listen to this person going through my shopping list in my mind, or could he please end because I need really to go. This is the most power tool on my tool belt for being in a deep relationship. And love is when the energy is flowing, when I'm not anymore in my thinking world. Only listening to another person with an open heart and acceptance without judging the other person and giving space, it works miracles. And to the other thing, praise what is praiseworthy, I will never forget when I was teaching, I could not get in touch or in a bonding relationship. So there was this little boy, oh my God, he annoyed me so much, the six-year-old, yeah, And my friend gave me this 
is there something, some little thing, what is praiseworthy? And I said, no, nothing, for sure, nothing. And she said, hmm. And then I looked at him the other day and was really searching for something before I got angry again because he did something. And he had this wonderful blue eyes. So the next day when I met him, she said, try to tell him this. And I looked in his eyes and when he came to me, and I said, you know, sweetheart, that you have wonderful blue eyes. And that broke everything. He was there, he froze and he said, really? And then he started to cry. I think nobody in his whole life ever said something nice about him. and so. Every time when I got upset and he did something or he annoyed me, I was like, then I could go to the place praiseworthy. And I think for me, that is really one of the main practices because I can do that with almost everybody. Yeah. And the thing is, if you start looking, then you find it. So that's a pivotal practice for me is to begin to look for that. In the job that I do as a cashier, we have all kinds of kids coming through. Some of them even have Down syndrome. Sometimes they come through alone. There's a boy that I'm thinking of. He came through and he was clearly Down syndrome, but he was by himself. He was shopping for something. It was very simple. I think it was one drink or something. And he paid with cash. And then I was giving him his change back. And he said, no, no, you keep that for the next person. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do that. I'm going to put this up here because there are always people who are like a penny short or a nickel short. And I'm just going to do that. And I thanked him and he was very grateful for that. And I did that. That's the thing too. Don't just say things. Actually follow through. This is the practice becoming a way that I wish my life to be. You know what I'm saying? We have a whole lifetime of learned bad habits that are protective and this kid who came through, he was being vulnerable with me. He was more vulnerable than most people I know just because he wanted to be generous. He wanted to be seen. He wanted to have somebody relate to him. I think it's so important what you're saying about how we do this for the kids that just happen into our lives. Some of you have kids and you have little kids and have grandkids. How important it is for these little kids to have these moments, like you said, the blue eyes, you just find something. So I make it a point when the kids come through the line with their parents to speak to them or make eye contact with babies who don't even speak yet, how important it is for them to have those impressions of love in their life and how strangers can have those same impressions. Well, we do need to be taught to be careful with strangers. Of course we do, but I'm safe with the child. Parent is there. Anyway, oh, well, I was going to read this poem. The question that I asked was, do we know what love is? And when I start asking myself some of these questions, as an honest ask of myself, do I know what that is? I get some very interesting answers. If I keep my inquiry alive and curious, and listening, it's kind of like listening to myself. And also, a lot of my bad habits are founded in language. So if I say, it's going to be difficult, it's going to be difficult. You know what I'm saying? It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. What interests me now is, what is my self-talk? How am I framing this internally to myself? 
Let me read this poem. It's kind of nagging at me. Here's what he has to say. You don't know what love is. On the way to the picnic, I stopped to buy an apple pie and a big bag of corn chips. My favorites. We get there and drink beer, grill burgers, and have a good time. Just to show what a good guy I am, I leave them the rest of the apple pie. But I wrap and fold the corn chips carefully and place them next to our cooler so they will come home with us. They are my favorites. The next day I go to the kitchen for the corn chips, but they are nowhere to be found. I look everywhere, and then I go to the laundry room where she is doing the wash, and I ask her, where are the corn chips? I left them there to be nice, she says, and that's how the fight starts. It goes on and on, but it ends the way it always ends. She's in tears, and when I try to comfort her by saying I love her, she says, you don't love me. You don't know what love is. And I'm thinking, not out loud, of course, that's a goddamn lie. I love those corn chips. One of my favorite poems, Red Hawk's a Poet. But, you know, I think about that sometimes. What's my preference? What's my preference in this moment to go back to that conversation about my sister that I was having trouble with? If I'm willing to let that thing that I was not forgiving her for just be there, just be there, I'm actually making my priorities different. So it's not about the corn chips. It's not about the dinner. It's about my relationship with her. And that's much bigger priority than me being right about what she did. Because people are going to do that. People are going to really disappoint us and embarrass us and hurt us. And Lord knows I do that myself. And I do it to myself. So all of that, just take a step back. You'd be surprised at how many of my customers will just look at me and see the process I'm going through with the previous customer. And they just go, take a breath. It's okay. You're going to be all right. You're doing just great. I've got so many friends, even in strangers, who see how much of a struggle it is when we're actually practicing this stuff. Okay, this is a good segue into the next thing I wanted to say. I have a favorite coffee shop. I know the owner. I've gone there for years. They have really good coffee too. But there's something about that environment. There's something about the community of baristas that they've got working there. They always have about four or six people working the shop. And the owner is oftentimes outside. When you go into that coffee shop, there's some kind of magnetism going on there. I was paying attention to that one day. The baristas mostly are in their 20s. And I heard these young women, there was a shift change and someone was leaving and she was saying, okay, I'll see you guys tomorrow. I love you. And she'd go out the door and we say, oh, we love you too. And then they just go about their business. And I just noticed how much they were saying that. How unusual that is, that they were willing to allow themselves to be heard to say that. And I was thinking about how unusual that is in my life. You don't hear people saying in a public space like that. And they really meant it. They cared about each other. It was palpable. And so I went out where the 
owner was sitting out on his table and I said, I just noticed this about your baristas and I'm really impressed by that because it creates a place where people want to come. They want to come and have their coffee there. They don't even know what's going on, but there's competence. There's a kind of elegance. There's a feel like you're being taken care of. There's a warmth to it. It's not just the coffee. It's something else. And he said, well, you know, he said, that's an intentional culture that we have created. He said, we have regular meetings where we go camping. We go out and we sit by a fire or we go hiking. And then we sit around and we talk about things and we talk about everything. And he said, and those young people were putting some of them through college for the first time or finding ways to help these people out, to get on with their life, to improve their life. They're not just working in a coffee shop. I was so impressed by that. I think that when we have close friends, we can do that. But to be able to create a place where people are coming regularly, we're talking about impression food. There's an impression food that is really invaluable. And he's nowhere near any spiritual practice, as far as I can tell. And then I was sitting in there having my coffee one day, and I was actually reading my book, Self-Observation. And I noticed that somebody had spilled coffee on the ground. And I noticed also that a woman was coming through with a walker. So I got up and I got a um, paper towel and I wiped it up. And this man was sitting across the room from me and he came over to me as I was sitting there reading my book. And he said, I saw what you did. He said, and I really appreciate that. It was like, I'm looking at this woman coming through with her walker and there's coffee on the floor. The baristas were serving people their coffee. They didn't see it. They were in another room where the coffee served. And it's like the obvious thing to do. It's not a big deal. It's just an obvious thing to do if you're in the mindset of being in service to whatever's going on in your environment. And then he saw the name of the book and he said, that looks like a really good book. (laughs) And I told him where he could get it and all the rest of it. But I thought it was very interesting that he picked up on the fact that I was paying attention to the environment. And that was in the coffee shop. That's what we can create. We can create this kind of thing. Can I create in my environment a space where these kinds of opportunity to tell someone that I love them arises? It might not be in words. It might be in a gesture. It might be in a withholding of my opinion about them. (laughs) I have friends I'm really able to practice that with. Well, there's another thing that Red Hawk said to me about negative emotions. He says, you know, you have the right to not be negative. That's another pivotal consideration to hold. You have the right not to be negative. I want to talk about that a little bit because we live at a time that it can be really challenging. We just went through an election in this country. Anybody here not aware of that? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) And there's an expression used particularly by one side, it's called owning the libs, owning the libertarians or owning the Democrats. And the tactic or the strategy of that, attack ads are very popular by this group of people. They use fear and anger to make their point and to get your vote basically is what they're doing. But I was very curious about this phrase to be owned. And I was thinking about how I don't like being manipulated. And I had conversations with a lot who feel similarly that when I'm feeling like I'm being manipulated, I really don't like that. What do I do in a situation like that? 
And what I realized was this idea of being owned is something that somebody is doing to me to get my emotions riled up. And if I can practice at that point, and it's not easy, as we all know, it's not easy and sometimes not able to do it. So I call people like Red Hawk, can you help me out with this? Non-expression of negative emotions. It's the basis of it. Because then I'm not owned by that other particular opinion or that other point of view. So what am I owned by? What do I wish to own? This is how my thought process is going on this particular thing. Well, what do I wish to own? I wish to know what my work is. I wish to know what my business is. And I wish to know what is not my business. I wish to know it so I can own it. There's something the Buddha said. I'm assuming he's saying this to his students. The Buddha said, your work is to discover your work. And then with all your heart, give yourself to it. I think that really states it. I wish to own that. I wish to know what my work is. Even when I'm a cashier at a grocery store, in this moment, when this child is in distress, what is my work in relationship to this situation? Is it just to get the mom out of there as quickly as possible? Is it to maybe distract this little boy who is being feisty or disruptive or a parent that's scolding a child? Can I maybe distract that parent, for example? With the intention of interrupting that relationship with that child getting scolded, I'm just making this stuff up, but you see what I'm saying. I'm in a situation where I wish to know what my work is in the moment and to be able to articulate it. And that brings us back to the kind of thing that we're doing tonight. And that's been a growth process. And I've learned to come from a place of this is what I wish my work to be. This is my intention for my work. And here we landed on learn how to restore love. So he says later on, the task of the soul is to restore love in any and all situations and relationships through kindness, forgiveness, and apology. And it's not so easy. Some of you know it. I know that I need to apologize, but if I'm too PO'd in the moment to do it, I might say the words, but I don't mean it. So I need to come back and try it again, you know? But that's the beauty of having people that we're working with. I'm thinking of a particular incident where I was really PO'd with somebody in my household who had said something. I was angry about that. And then I knew I was wrong. I turned around and I said, well, I'm sorry about that, but I didn't mean it. So I came back later and I said, look, I said I was sorry, but I didn't mean it. But I really am sorry. And I really see my part in this. And I wish to apologize. You know, it's messy. Being human being is messy. And I think that once I've accepted that it's messy, but I can clean up my messes. You know what I'm saying? I'm taking responsibility when I clean up my messes. Am I potty trained? Seriously. Am I willing to be potty trained? Which is, am I going to be responsible for cleaning up the messes that I make? Am I willing to be responsible enough to clean up other people's messes? If somebody is damaged and I can say something that ameliorates that effect, particularly on a young child or someone who is vulnerable, older people too, I'm seeing a lot of that as well, being older and being forgetful. People come through and they're talking about their illnesses. <laughs> Lord, I hate that. I hate it so much. And of course, they're going to come to me and talk about their illnesses. So practice is everywhere. For me, when I'm in those states of negative emotions and negative thinking, one just rolls into another. Mm -hmm. And I could be asleep for 
a long time during the day just being engulfed in these negative thoughts and negative emotions. It's almost like they're addictive. And for me, I want to dismiss them. I just want them away. I just want happy thoughts. And to sit in those negative emotions and observe them, what my part is in it, instead of pointing my finger to somebody else, is a struggle in itself. And that's where self-observation really comes in play. It gives me the ability to look at my inner thoughts, inner feelings about relationships with people. Yeah. Well, the idea of wanting them to go away, I think it's a really good thing to notice because they're uncomfortable. And when you're doing a practice like restoring, it's uncomfortable. Being vulnerable with someone who's scary is uncomfortable. Another aspect of what I do, I'm using myself as an example, I don't want to have an opinion about guns. I just don't want to be around them. You know, a guy comes in, he's a security guy, and he goes around the whole complex where the store is. And he's often in the store just talking to the managers because that's part of what he does. He's seen. His job is to report if there's anything that's dangerous in the situation. There's a whole protocol about shutting the store down. We're trained. If anybody wants to rob you, for example, because I'm handling money, what to do. You don't try to argue with somebody like that. So you need to know how to behave in these situations. But there's a lot of guns around here. And that's something I had to struggle with myself internally. One of my customers came up and she saw this security guy. He's got a big patch on his arm. It says security. He's got guns and tasers. And she said to me, that guy over there, she said, should I be worried? <laughs> And I said, no, 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 it's okay. He just comes around, he's seen, so people know, and he's actually a deterrent. People see that he's around, so they're not likely to try anything out. That was kind of reassuring. So the more information I have, the more I can relate to that fear in myself, which has been there a very long time. It's not just that situation, but it comes from someplace within myself. And to be able to say that to another person is also useful to give her information about that. So there's a lot going on here. Anybody else have anything to say? I've been thinking about this topic in terms of what's said in a book by Arnaud Desjardins, Hmm. Ever-Present Peace. He says that love is a stable condition of being. Hmm. And that if one has an unloving attitude toward anyone or anything, one can't rest in the peace and love that the traditions promise. I did kind of an inventory of who are people that I have an unloving attitude toward. Maybe I need to turn that around. He says that what's important is turning that around in the moment. That really makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I think that's, that's a hard one. That's, that's, that's really a hard one. There's a guy that has said some truly mean and cruel things Mm. to someone that I deeply love. And it kind of bled over into relationship with me. And I just realized I I don't have an opportunity to really talk to this person in person very much, Mm. but I need to just clear this. And I did. If part of this that might be useful is to give some examples of how we're working with this, I'd say that when I met this person, I said, we can argue about something and probably our positions are not going to change on this because I really feel what I feel. 
but I don't need for that to stand in relationship with you. And, you know, we can just move forward. And that was, I know, really appreciated by him Hmm. and by me. Because these things, they're not in my consciousness all the time, but somehow they take up some energy, they take up some space. I think to actually make the effort. What was it that Arnaud said about love as a state of being? Yeah, it's a stable. Stable. Yeah. And it seems like that's what we're working toward. It's not like we can do that, but we can work on this. Yeah. When should I say something? When should I not say something? I think having an experience like that, when you actually were moved to say something, to go forward, reveal something that perhaps was unexpected. You know, like you expected to get some pushback or you expected to argue. And it was a different experience. Well, I didn't know how it was going to go, but just to approach it like, okay, we'll see. And also from what you're saying, to be in touch instinctually with what feels right is important because if you miss it or you cover it over with doubt or whatever, then maybe you miss an opportunity. Well, that's another good segue. I wanted to talk about quandary. What happens when I'm not sure how to go forward? I'm not sure what to do about a certain situation. And once again, to stay with the process rather than making a decision one way or the other is often the best way to be shown the way through. Like you're saying, doubt. Do I do this? Do I do that? So let me give you an example. There was a wedding recently. I heard about it secondhand because doing my cashier job, somebody came in that I knew and and I said, oh, have you been out to see these people? And she said, no, but I'm going to the wedding. And I said, what wedding? And that's how I found out about it. But I didn't get an invitation. So I'm going, okay, well, I didn't get an invitation. That means that here it starts. It's not rational. And it's coming up from a great wealth of bad habits of self-hatred in my past. But it's coming up. Okay, well, maybe I'm not supposed to be there. Maybe it's a private affair. And I'll just let it go. And I couldn't let it go. And so I asked a friend, I said, should I go or should I not go? And She said, I can't make that decision for you. So I was holding this quandary and, well, maybe I should just give them a gift, but not go. And it's like, okay, wait a minute. This is getting crazy. Step back a minute. So here I was, I was struggling with this internally and I get a text from the bride and she said, do you have a recipe for those stuffed dates that everybody loved? And I made them for years and years. And she said, do you have a recipe for that? Because I really like to have this for the thing that we're doing. And I'm on my phone and I get this text and I say, well, sure. And I just start texting her the recipe. And I said, and here's the secret to it. And I texted her the secret. She was really appreciative. And the whole thing just evaporated. And I knew what to do. And then I remembered something that she had said. We were in a group together. It was a very important group that we were in. It was a structured thing. And she said to me, I have known you for years and I've been in and out of this situation. But every time I come back, you're always there. And I remembered that at the time when this whole thing about this wedding just evaporated, needing an invitation. What happened was there was an email that went out and I missed the mail. So, ta da. But that's how we get in our own way. You know what I'm saying? But I'm sort of reflecting this back because then the way forward was obvious. 
it's not always that clear because we're messy beings. And sometimes it isn't always clear, especially when there's emotions involved, going back to that situation with my sister. And I did go out to dinner with her and it was, it was fabulous. It was really wonderful. It wasn't hard at all. And I went to the wedding and I really enjoyed it. We're all supposed to be there. But the thing that I got was here she was reflecting back to me that whatever's going on, I'm always there. I'm always part of it. But I had not seen myself in that way. So in a way, that was a real gift to have that kind of reflection and to go back to this question, do I know what love is? Do I know when I am being loved, appreciated? Do I know when I'm meant to be in a situation? I don't want to answer that question because it's an open question and it's in the moment. But having had that experience with this wedding, which is kind of a funny thing to think about, but the way forward was absolutely clear. I was meant to be there. But what was standing in the way was my own opinion of myself, my own self-worth. So it's showing me, showing me to myself and to be able to allow myself to be loved. To me, that's what I wanted to end with. Not that we need to end, but I think that that may be the hardest thing. And it reminds me of a song. It's in a movie called Moulin Rouge. The last line in the song is, the greatest thing that you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. And I know getting back to vulnerability, I think it's one of the hardest things for me. Okay, here I am, the self-talk. Maybe it's not that hard, E.E. Maybe it's not that hard. Watch your language around this. The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. It's simple, and it's the hardest thing in the world to do. Or is it? Is it that hard? Can we practice on one another? Yeah, I had left my purse somewhere. It was about 35 miles away from where I ended up. There wasn't anything I could do about that. My purse wasn't with me. I had no phone. I had no glasses. I had no driving license. So I just determined the next day I was going to go drive and get my purse without any of those things. So I went to a friend of mine's house and I had a message that the person that I had been with where I left my purse was on their way to me. And to me, this is a striking example exactly of what you're talking about. Because to let that in, mm. to just let that loving gesture in, it's not hard, really, speaking from the experience. And yet, there's something so precious about it that when it happens, it's almost like what's fed is soul because soul responds. It's almost like a giddy thing inside. You feel this really happy, oh my gosh, someone loves me, peace. And I think that thing about stability, because that's what I felt. I felt completely stable in myself and being with my friend because we ended up spending the day with each other and it was just mysterious and things unfolded and we had a lot of time to share. It isn't something that I do very often. And it was all about this purse, <laughs> something that I forgot. And when I initially realized that this has happened, I got this place where, oh, 
oh my gosh, this is a place where I can beat myself up. Mm -hmm. But I was tired and there was nothing I could do about it. Yeah, that thing about beating yourself up, that's the old habit. It's to be able to catch it and go, wait a minute, no, I'm not doing that anymore. For myself, because I'm so in the habit of not allowing myself the consideration that I would allow another person. I don't treat myself in the way that I would treat my friends. I have to learn that. I don't know if anybody else can relate, but I need to learn that. So what's the distinction between having remorse for some action that was hurtful that you engaged and beating yourself up? In either case, it seems like there are some difficult feelings that one is going to have to tolerate or have to be with. So what's the distinction between having remorse and beating yourself up? I think true remorse is a conscious decision not to do that action again. And to know that the beating oneself up thing is a bad habit. It is a habit. And to also know that you may do that again, even when you swear you will never do it again, because we're going to keep doing it until we don't do it anymore. But I think remorse is to take on those feelings that you were talking about that are uncomfortable. I mean, the most uncomfortable feeling for me is when I hurt another person. It took me years to learn that. When I hurt another person, it's not because they deserve it, but I need to get on the other side of that. And I, I don't know how we do that. And then we learn that remorse is a vow we take to ourselves to not do that again. I think Rattrap also makes a distinction between feeling guilty and remorse. And that's for me a very important distinction because I'm feeling guilty, then I'm in my self-beating up mood. And he said, if you feel really deep remorse, the only thing you can say is that you're deeply sorry because it's done. Mm. But he said it's the fuel or energy to make you change and transform something in you. It's not feeling guilty, yeah, because then you do it again because it's all about me. I'm feeling guilty. But remorse is about the other person. Yeah. I have the intention or I will never do that again to this other person. I think you've expressed it very well. And that's what he's saying about this process, process of putting it in the body. It's something that I take on myself. It's a promise that I make to myself, knowing full well that I may do it again, but also to be able to forgive myself. It's not that my intention is to do it again, but as I practice this, it's less about the feeling. So love is not a feeling. It's not about guilt. To really have remorse, it would seem to me, it's actually not about the other person. This is just the way that I'm thinking about it. It's really about me. I have to be able to really look at why I did that. What shadow issues are there that created this reaction in me? Is it jealousy? Is it competitiveness? Is there something this situation or person triggers in me? Without seeing that, we are going to do it again and again, it seems like to me. So what you're asking yourself is, why am I being cruel in this situation? I think they're the useful questions. I don't have an answer for that. But I think that the whole wrestling with remorse, I know that from some of the work that we've been doing, I woke up one morning crying about something that I had done to someone 50 years ago. 
50 years ago. I don't even see this person anymore. I don't even know if this person's even alive anymore. I did something and it was hurting me. That's the pain that I feel. I think I can not go to the guilt place because I didn't know any better, but I still did it. So I'm still owning it. When I can own what I do, then I can find a way to be responsible for it. I just had this experience with a person. It was maybe 40 years ago, maybe not that much. And when I told her, I am so sorry for this, I was able to look at what the impetus was behind what I did, Mm. what my shadow was. Mm. And it was helpful to me and to her. Yeah. I don't always do that. But in that situation, I was remorseful and I was sorry. But I also, when I looked at the whole thing, it helped me. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to say was my teacher used to call himself master of the obvious. And I think one of the teachings from that is that we can do that. We can see what's the obvious way forward. And the obvious way forward is through this path of restoration of love. It's going towards the stability that is a way of being. If that is so, then I want that. (laughs) I want to be able to move through the quandaries in my life. And there are many, and there are going to be many more. All of the messiness of being a human being with these tools and to use them properly and not against one another, not as weapons. That's been a life's work for me (laughs) to put down the weapons in my life. Maybe you can read the book one day. I don't know if I'll ever get to writing that one, but that was a very strong teaching just to put down the weapons and choose this path. To live this way is so uncommon. Mm -hmm. It's a challenge every day. Yeah. Situations come up every day, not just with people, but with situations where, as Arno says, the unfriendly side of life shows itself. And I don't think it's possible to just love these things. I just tested positive for COVID. I wasn't going to say this, but I can't necessarily love that. But if I work with this a little bit and I hunker down, I can just isolate. I mean, take a little space to myself for a couple of days. But working with being in relationship to everyone and everything in a loving way, God, what a name. Well, he's not saying be loving. He's saying learn how to love. That we fail at again and again. Yeah. But to not make that a problem, you know, maybe not express it, which is kind of why I wanted to start there. If we can just start and not expressing it and then letting the body take care of that. And then the right thing will appear. It will appear. There's got to be a next moment. Well, if you're fully in relationship with that, I would say, not expressing it, there are distinctions. There's a distinction in not suppressing. Yeah. So that's why it's a practice. We have to figure this stuff out. And be with some uncomfortable feelings. Yes. And I think that some of you have have expressed that tonight. You know, kids are really great. They're constantly pushing for something. And if you can figure out what it is that that little kid needs in the moment, it may just be recognition. It may just be somebody to look at him, talk to him, to acknowledge that he's there and he's seen. And we can do that with one another. I'll tell you, being a cashier, people just want to be seen. That was the first thing I learned. I've been doing this for a while now. 
People just want to be seen. They want somebody to really, truly be there, which is one reason why I love this job. <laughs> oh my God, you, you know, what did you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a cashier. It's not really what I signed up for. But here it is. I get to be with people for short periods of time. And what I can give them is my attention. It's so precious and it's so rare that people actually give attention to one another. To me, that's love. That's how to love a person. Somebody that you disagree with, people come through that line and they've got all kinds of hats on and t-shirts that tell me exactly what their opinion is, particularly of the last election. And I don't agree with that, but I can give them my attention. I can talk to them about the vegetables that they're buying. And all of a sudden, we're in another conversation altogether. And my opinions are put aside. My self-righteousness is not important in this situation. I'm able to just be with that person. Maybe that's all we can do when we disagree with somebody. Do our work, own our work, and share what we can of ourselves with one another. And sometimes it's just our attention. That little boy just wanted to know somebody loved him just for that period of time. And I'll tell you something, we remember that. I remember those teachers that paid attention to me when I needed that. I remember them. I return to this idea that we all have relational minds. We're all relational beings. And that I have to keep it quite simple and just turn my attention back to my breath and my body before all else is possible. And in terms of restoration, I don't think that's really possible until we have that relationship to our embodied experience, returning again and again to that presence in ourselves. Keeping it simple works for me. It's restoring my attention, being present to my breath and my body is a good start. Maybe that's the end of the story. Thanks for all your help too, because every one of you has been a tremendous influence on me. And I love you guys.